Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. It is a fact of human history that certain types of music will scare people. They get scared because this music allegedly comes from Satan himself. The Dark Lord has been blamed or credited with creating or inspiring the creation of evil music. Music that will make mere mortals do, well, bad things. Or at the very least think bad thoughts. Satan, working under pseudonyms such as Lucifer, Beelzebub, Abaddon, Apollon... Apollyon and the ever-popular Prince of Darkness has always had the ability to freak people out. Take the case of the Catholic Church not so long ago. It once declared that a chord sounded so, um, well, evil that it had to be composed by the devil himself. I mean, it only stood to reason, right? I mean, evil-sounding chord, somebody evil had to write it. They called it Diabolicus in Musica, the devil in music. It sounds kind of dissonant, which means it's not entirely pleasing to the ear, but that was the whole point. It evoked an emotional response, a disturbing emotional response. But then again, wait a second, isn't all music about emotion? Well, anyway, for, for, for the Catholic Church back in the day, it was a little too much, and they banned the use of this particular chord, and composers were forbidden from using it. It was all very, oh, very scary. Now, today, things are a little different. People use Diabolicus and Musica all the time. If you want to know what it sounds like, what this evil Dark Lord chord sounds like, run the theme to The Simpsons through your head. It's loaded with what is called the Devil's Tritone. Now, rock music was, and in some corners of the planet still is, considered to be the product of the Wicked One, the Dark Angel, the father of lies and deceit. Some will single out specific branches of rock as being particularly evil. There were certain types of metal that are pretty close with Satan, especially the kind that comes out of Norway. Norwegian death metal people are pretty hardcore when it comes to their relationships with the devil. And another easy target is goth. Now, it seems that goth music and goth followers are often targeted when someone flips out and does something weird or awful, like uh, shooting up Columbine or Dawson College. So maybe it's time we offered a bit of perspective, at least from the music side of things. Don't be afraid. Please don't be afraid. This is the real scoop on the music they call goth. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Nine Inch Nails, with a cover of a Joy Division song from 1980. Now, Joy Division was one of the bands that helped create goth music, and the Nail song was from the movie The Crow, which had a lead character who, of course, was also very, very goth. Okay, wait a second. We, we've jumped way too far ahead. Welcome again. I'm Alan Cross, and the goal here is to shed some light on goth music. And don't worry, nobody's going to melt or anything like that. Goth is a subculture. 
and it really is a full-blown subculture. It carefully guards its membership, it's about music, but that's only part of it. Goth can also be about art, and fashion, and lifestyle, and in some cases, religion and politics. And like any subculture, there are varying degrees of adherence. On one end, you have the dabblers, and on the other side, the hardcore. And like any subculture, there are the crazies, the extremists, the wackos who are detached from morality or reality, the tiny, tiny, tiny few who do things so monumentally dumb or evil that everyone else suffers. Stigmas for everyone. Thank you, idiots at Columbine. Thank you, Kimvir Gill. So, let's get this straight from the beginning. To be goth or to be into goth is not to be a psychopath. Yes, the fashion might remind some of an eternal Halloween, and the music might be dark, and yes, it's true that a characteristic of goth adherence is to be highly opinionated about many things, and especially goth culture itself, but really, goth is not the evil thing that some people think it is. Okay, that's the end of the editorial. This is a music show, so let's focus on that. Goth could very well be the biggest rock-related subculture in the world. We see it in music, in comic books, and cartoons, and fashion on TV and in movies. I mean, if there wasn't such a thing as goth, director Tim Burton wouldn't exist. Goth music was one of the many different byproducts of the British end of the punk rock explosion of the 1970s. Yeah, there were some American practitioners back in the day, but goth is first and foremost a British creation. At first, describing music as gothic meant that it had a doomy, gloomy atmosphere. The first uses of the word gothic in a modern sense were in description of Joy Division records. This music was gothic in the sense that it was reminiscent of themes in 19th century literature known as gothic. The original novel Frankenstein is an example of gothic literature. Going back further, there's Gothic architecture, exemplified in the churches of the Middle Ages. And if you want to go back even further, there were the Visigoths, the marauding tribes who helped with the fall of the Roman Empire. Or it might be simpler than that. Some early Goth practitioners maintained that the real reason they were tagged as Goths was because some of them lived in an apartment block in London that was called Visigoth Towers. Goths, for short. Whatever the case, a significant number of punk refugees began to turn towards dark, gloomy music because it was, well, it was a dark, gloomy time in England. High unemployment, strikes, recession. It was pretty ugly, especially for young people. As the original punk scene died away, the darker-minded slowly coalesced around those who already made dark music, at least part-time. That would include David Bowie and Joy Division, the first version of Ultravox, and an Irish performance art group called The Virgin Prunes. And of course, let's not forget the contributions of Alice Cooper, who was famous for being fond of the macabre, and even Kiss, who had, you know, that weird thing going for him. Early goth music was less aggressive than punk. It was also introspective and artsy. There was an intellectual component featuring trappings of traditional gothic horror, existentialist philosophy and romanticism, along with a nice dollop of nihilism. It's very brainy. But then you have to add in the inspiration provided by well, the Munsters and the Adams Family and some of those great, great B-horror movies from the 50s and 60s, not to mention the Rocky Horror Picture Show. So you kind of get the idea. Now, despite this, this darkness... Goth was never whiny. 
introspective, maybe, but there was a strength there, a strength and a conviction that needed to be celebrated. Amongst the very first were Susie and the Banshees. Singer Susie Sue was a member of a group of fans called the Bromley Contingent, who followed the Sex Pistols around from gig to gig. In fact, if you've ever seen or heard the famous Bill Grundy TV episode with the Pistols, the woman Grundy hits on is, in fact, Susie Sue. With her really striking appearance and her black hair and the makeup, Susie became an archetype for thousands. This is from 1978. Susie and the Banshees, one of the first generation goth bands. We'll come back to them in a bit. Other like-minded groups started popping up. Johnny Lydon's Public Image Limited was pretty dark. Same with Killing Joke. And then Ian Curtis of Joy Division committed suicide at adding fuel to that fire. Some remembered that Dave Vanian of the punk band The Damned sometimes claimed to be a vampire, which, you know, was pretty interesting. And when a new group called Bauhaus came along with this song in late 1979, a song all about the world's most famous vampire actor things began to coalesce into an actual scene, complete with an ideology. The little goose is dead, the bats have left the bell tower, the victims have been bled and velvet lines, the black box. The little goose is dead. Bauhaus. With Bella Lugosi's Dead, the prototypical goth anthem, complete with vampires and bats and bell towers and death and doom and... Well, you heard it, right? Fashion also became a glue for this new scene. Black was the dominant color. Black would have to do until something darker came along. The dark clothes would also be enhanced with styles that were popular 150 years earlier. The type of clothes... Mary Shelley probably was wearing when she wrote Frankenstein in 1818. This fashion sense also extended through hair and makeup. Now, at first, to be called a goth was an insult, but by the summer of 1982, the scene reclaimed that word as its name. It also found itself a headquarters. We'll pick it up there in a second. Welcome back, I'm Alan Cross, and we're trying to set the record straight on the subject of goth music. The big turning point for goth came between the summer of 1982 and the end of 1983. A number of goth-like bands had emerged, but with no center, it was very tough for things to take root and really grow. That all changed in July of 1982 when a new club opened in the Soho district of London called the Bat Cave. The Bat Cave was founded by a group called Specimen a very theatrical group obsessed with pushing the envelope of the live performance. For example, their first single wasn't released on record or tape. It was only released on video, which is pretty wild for the early 1980s. Specimen was so ambitious that they decided to open up their own club. They decorated the place in black and leather and lace, with other design cues taken from horror movies from the 1930s. And there was a definite music policy in this place. Absolutely no funk. Instead, the goal was to reinvent glam-era David Bowie and cross it with Dr. Frankenfurter from the Rocky Horror Picture Show. That meant sex. Straight, gay, and everything in between. The Batcave took off. In fact, it couldn't be confined to just that one location. 
Organizers arranged Batcave nights in other clubs around the UK. There were franchised versions of the Batcave. They even went to New York to show off at a club called the Danceteria. In other words, the Batcave folk did a lot to spread the word on goth, and they had a lot of success. Let's go back to Specimen. You want to hear what they sounded like? This is from a 1983 album called Batastrophe. It's called Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Specimen, the founders of the legendary and highly influential Batcave nightclub in the West End of London, ground zero for the goth explosion that was to follow. Goth's big break into the mainstream came in early 1983, as everyone was getting tired of the bouncy, lightweight technopop of the day. They just found it had all grown very boring. Or at least that was the opinion of the British music media. For a time, the goths were the new darlings. The indie charts were suddenly filled with people dressed in black also sporting a deathly white pallor. They had teased black hair, dog collars, ruffled shirts, and, of course, lots of leather. And the fascination with the undead continued. Check out this. This is from 1981. Nick Cave and the birthday party with Release the Bat. Nick Cave and the birthday party with Release the Bats. It's really kind of tough to get much more gothic than that. The early 1980s were a great time for goth as the scene grew and grew and grew. Goth music has come in several distinct waves. The first generation of goth bands existed from 1979 through to about the end of 1985. Britain led the way. Susie the Banshees and The Cure were out front, although Susie would later be accused of being too pop for goth, and Robert Smith would later claim that The Cure were never really goth in the first place. It was all a big misunderstanding, apparently. But then there were many who were proud to be called goth. The March Violets, the Dance Society, Sex Gang Children, and a ton of others. For a while, there was a goth sound. The drums were fairly tribal. Bass players played high on the fretboard and sometimes carried much of the melody instead of just providing the rhythmic foundation. The guitars were sharp and thin, while the singing could be almost operatic at times. In many cases, everything came together to form something very hypnotic and mesmerizing. Here's an example. This is a Batcave group called Alien Sex Fiend. The track is Now I'm Feeling Zombified. Alien Sex Fiend from the Batcave era, the first generation of goth bands. Okay, I'm going to play one more. It's a band called Southern Death Cult, who often toured with Bauhaus and featured a singer who spent much of his time growing up in southern Ontario. They began as a goth band and, uh, well, hang on, I'll explain in a second. You might actually figure it out when you hear this. This is from 1981. The track is Fat Man. Hey! <laughs> 
Fat Man from Southern Death Cult. Have you figured it out yet? They started pretty goth, then they shortened their name to just Death Cult, and finally they just became The Cult. And yes, it is The Cult that went on to sell millions of records in the late 80s and early 1990s. By the end of 1985, the first wave of goth and goth mania was coming to an end. But the music and the subculture proved, well, just as undead as some of their subjects of fascination. All right, let's review. Goth music cleaves off from the original British punk rock explosion from the late 1970s. A scene, a sound, a fashion sense, and an orthodoxy develops. A star system is created, and for a while, goth music was all over the mainstream, well, at least in the UK. But then the sun uh, came up, and it seemed that everyone went back to their crypts. I'm, I'm, I'm speaking metaphorically, of course. So what happened next? Well, goth got bigger, but quietly. I'll explain next time in part two as we go through the full history of goth music. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.